0: I think that Charles founding aha moment was not that education is um, sadly underfunded in our country, especially in high need communities, and that teachers and students need help uh, because that certainly was not new news. His aha moment was if I can give citizen donors, regular people, the ability to pick and choose and be direct with their giving and hear directly from the people they'll help and get the same sort of appreciation and feedback and transparency as was previously the domain solely of millionaire benefactors, um, you know. Usually, if you give fifty bucks to a regular nonprofit. And, and I don't want to uh, besmirch anyone. They do many organizations doing wonderful work. But you don't get the cost report breaking down to the penny of where your dollars are going. You don't get the direct connection with the recipient. Um, and so that was sort of the inspiration, I think, for, for Charles, which is that if, if a regular, if the internet, if technology can enable a regular person giving 50 bucks to have that experience of directness and transparency and reporting and feedback, um, something magical might happen.
1: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different, and on this episode, two extraordinary leaders, Charles Best and Oliver Hurst Hiller, from the incredible nonprofit Donors Choose. You're not going to want to miss this episode. We are sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. They are number one in cloud ERP, and they are the platform for growth for high growth oriented companies. Check out netsuite.com/different. That's netsuite.com/different. On this episode, a powerful, and I would say inspiring example of what happens when a small group of people come together to make a difference in our world. Uh, Charles Best is the founder, and Oliver Hurst-Hiller is the chief technology officer from DonorsChoose.org. And this is a nonprofit that allows teachers who need help to go straight to the public and ask for it. It was founded by Charles, who's a teacher himself, and he saw this problem, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of things that in the United States our public education system does not make available, does not make possible that kids need. And so Charles thought to himself, how do I create a platform, create an opportunity for teachers around the country to ask for support to help teach uh, our kids to grow up to be legendary people, and that's what he decided to do. So Charles is a teacher turned nonprofit founder and activist for children and education. Oliver is an entrepreneur uh, who's the chief technology officer at Donors Choose, and I've known Oliver for a very long time. He and I became friends uh, when I was a an advisor to an early startup of his. Uh, Oliver and Charles and the team there have pioneered to not just do something inspirational, but they're also category designers. This was one of the first organizations, nonprofit or profit, to uh, lead this new paradigm called crowdfunding that has now become a mega category on the internet. In addition, out of interest, um, on the board of directors of DonorsChoose are incredible folks like Stephen Colbert and LinkedIn chief executive, Jeff uh, Weiner. For more on Donors Choose, check out lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode and learn how you can get involved. Uh, they're a great organization. I think you're going to love this conversation. Now, as Joey Ramon said, hey ho, let's go.
0: I joined up uh, in 2006. Uh, Charles had the, the, the organization, even though it was early days, had just won an award from Stanford Business School and from Amazon, uh, dubbing it the most innovative nonprofit.
1: Yeah, yeah in but who, country. anyway? I mean, come
0: on. You get hired some serious people. Yeah, seriously. And so, uh, but but even at that juncture, we were just 30 people. But Charles, Charles had had long since figured out the model, and he founded it out of his public school classroom in the Bronx, where he was a teacher. Charles, can I tee you up? Can you can you uh, can you tell it? Can you tell us how it all began? Yeah, Christopher, if that's what you'd like
2: to hear, we we could riff though wh- wherever you want to go.
1: Well, I just you have this very powerful point of view about how to mobilize people around uh, doing some very powerful good things in the world. So so yeah, why not? You're a teacher, so like tell me the idea, and then and then we can sort of you know um, unearth different pieces of the journey along the way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, well, before we were able to pull Oliver away from the World Cup games that he was most committed to uh, when he was thinking about what he would do next. in, in 2006, I was um, before that, I was I was teaching at a high school in the Bronx, taught there for five years, taught history and English and um, a class called Virtual Enterprise. And I was like teachers all over the country, spending my own money on school supplies for my students and my colleagues were doing the same and then we would talk usually in the teacher's lunchroom because we had like there's like that little private teacher's lunchroom off of the cafeteria and that's where we would talk about all the stuff we wanted our students to have that we couldn't go into our own pockets to buy a a novel that we wanted them to read a a museum that we wanted our students to visit uh, a science experiment we wanted to do and all these ideas needed some materials to to happen, right? Like whether it was $200 for a class set of that novel or $600 for the bus and the museum entry to take our students on that trip. All these ideas needed microfunding. And this is years and years before crowdfunding was a word or a thing, but it just just struck me that there were people out there who've long wanted to support public school classrooms, but maybe they're skeptical about writing a check to the district central office and, and that check going into a black hole. And, and I just figured, all right, if, if those people could actually see where their money was going and they could choose between all these ideas that me and my colleagues have for helping our students, well then maybe we'd actually, we'd have a way to give our students the, that book and take them on that field trip.
1: And so the original idea starts off essentially is crowdfunding Uh, in this case for schools, but of course, uh, uh, as I understand it, if I remember right, even from the beginning, you thought, well, schools is one thing, but there's today what we call crowdfunding could be used to fund a lot of charities. And what if we created this platform where people who want to fund awesomeness, you know, look, look, can I say it this way? Is this the wrong way to think about it? Are you the Kickstarter of charities? Is that a way to think about it or how should I think about it?
2: yeah that that's a uh, Kickstarter for public school teachers is is uh, is is the simplest phrase and, and we got going i think I think about seven years before Kickstarter was founded and it was so actually at the time um, the the first news story about our site compared us to a philanthropic eBay because that was like the only parallel that they could yeah. draw at the time with like a two sided marketplace and people connecting but um but yeah, we, 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 uh, we hope that we did show that this idea of people who, who are on the front lines, who have an idea, who have a, a, a venture that they're seeking micro loans for, or a film that they want to seek financing for, or they're a teacher and they've got this idea for something they want to do with their kids, they ought to be able to connect with people who might only have a dollar to give or $10 to give, but who can, using the web, can now be patrons, financiers, philanthropists, even if uh, they would not qualify to do, uh, you know, alternative venture investing.
1: Well, and what I love about you, what you folks have done is you, you're pioneers in this kind of microfinance idea as well. Like if I sort of, I think in Venn diagrams, you know, so if I sort of think about the things that you pulled together, you know, people's uh, huge desire to give and contribute and be charitable, obviously. I think if you're a human being with any kind of a, if you're any kind of a real human being, you have some desire to make a difference, to make a contribution at whatever level in whatever ways. Right. So I think that's a natural human thing. We want to make the world a different place. And then um, you guys uh, sort of, this wisdom of the crowds this empowering lots of people to do little things that en mass, we can make big things. And, you know, I also, you know, another, another uh, charity I love in this area, as well as the, are the folks at Kiva.org microfinance loans uh, really pulls on my heartstrings. Uh, and so y- you and Kiva and a handful of others, you'll tell me, but you've really been at the forefront of this essentially crowdfunding for good causes.
0: Yeah. You know, I would I, at the risk of, Charles, let me interrupt because you're going you're to say inevitably something modest, and I, I'm going to uh, say is, I can brag for you, which is that um, I think I think Charles uh, invented the category. Uh, there, we can't find any evidence of crowdfunding uh, prior to DonorsShoes.org. In fact, I'll give you two. Uh, well, uh, Fred Wilson, who was on our board for ten years and who was first money into Kickstarter, has said we as much.
1: Uh, we his recently product. had his partner uh, Jerry Colonna on the podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, yeah, so, so, You should read Jerry's new book reboot. Holy shit. Woo! That's a book. Sorry. I <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, we, so, so, uh,
0: other people may have had this idea, but ideas are cheap. And I think Charles was the first person to actually make it work. And he did this pre Facebook. I think it was pre YouTube. Um, certainly. And, and, and in fact, one other anecdote I'll share is that, uh, I, I have the honor of having. I was high school classmates with the founder of Kickstarter, Perry Chen. We were in the same prom limo. Uh, I'm glad to go on record about that. And uh, anything
1: happened in that limo you wanted to tell us about right well, now?
0: Well, I basically gave him
1: this idea. That's totally. That's not true. That didn't happen at all.
0: Uh, what hap- What did happen did is that off?
1: did he rip you <laughs> off in the prom limo? <laughs> no.
0: That's Harry's awesome. a good guy. He and, and I remember after I'd been at Donorshoes.org for a couple of years doing this with Charles, Harry rang me up and said, I got an idea for a thing. And it's inspired by what Charles has done and what you guys are doing at Donorshoes.org. And he, we met at a pub and he showed me literally... It said, kickstart, he was showing me like the mockups. It was no site. And luckily, I, you know, I'm an idiot. I'm not sure I saw the future. I was like, go for it, you, uh, good luck. And there he goes and builds it. And uh, so, so I think you can draw it. And Kiva, we're good friends with those folks and uh, love what they do and have been in touch with them from the beginning. And so I think, I think all these things, the lines you drew are exactly right. And, uh, and, and, and one other, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think about one thing Charles and I can touch on later is sort of the evolution of crowdfunding, which, which has been interesting for us to witness. Uh, at the beginning, we definitely wrestled with folks never having given in this way before. We want you to team up with a stranger to help another stranger. And we spent many years trying to, this was not how people used to do in philanthropy. And, um, and, and and it was a challenge, and I think we did we surmounted it, but but it was it, it was it was tough going. And then I think there was this period when, with the birth of Kickstarter and Indiegogo and GoFundMe, where then now crowdfunding becomes somewhat mainstream, and that's without question helpful to us because people say, like, "Oh, I get it, I get it. I'm teaming up with some strangers to do a greater thing." Um, and then and then to come full circle, we're now at the point. Um, uh, at the risk of perhaps airing some of our dirty laundry, but in sharing our challenges, because um, that's what that's in part what this is about. Uh, one of our recent challenges is, is crowdfunding is now so mainstream. And as you know, crowdfunding doesn't always work out and the money doesn't always go where it's supposed to. Um, and we have a bunch of measures in place to ensure that that doesn't happen. We're a little different. Um, but what it's meant is that some school districts have looked at crowdfunding. They looked at, say, GoFundMe, and they say, oh, this makes us nervous. We don't want teachers going on GoFundMe asking for stuff. What if they're not a real teacher? What if it's not a real classroom? What if the stuff doesn't go to them? And so then they will pass a policy and the policy will say, um, you know, no crowdfunding. And then all of a sudden we hear from teachers who say, wait, 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 I got a problem. We've been using your site for years. And now the district passed this thing and it's sort of a baby with the bathwater situation. And then we then have to recover. So um, anyway, this, this is one of the things that we witness, right, as we go from the birth Charles inventing this category, and then it gets big, and now we're now we're dealing with some of the fallout.
1: Yeah, but it, it, that's a natural evolution, right? And, and, and I think it's great. And I think if you're an educator, if I'm a principal, uh, I got to understand this is the future, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this thing, but I gotta believe part of how we solve the education problem in the United States, which we all know is a massive problem, is we tap into Individual people who want to support, in this case, individual teachers, right, with initiatives that they're trying to do. And I don't know, you tell me, what are the top three to five things that teachers are looking to get done when they set themselves up on Donor's Choose? We see, you
2: wouldn't be surprised, huge numbers of requests for books, although rarely, if ever, for textbooks. Teachers use our site because they want to go beyond the chalkboard and beyond the textbook. And so they're requesting novels and just like books that, you know, give you a love of reading. So so that, that would probably be the top one. And then... Um, Chromebooks and, and uh, devices that can enable students to access the world of personalized learning. A lot of the technology requested on our site is for students with disabilities. And then after that, after books and after technology, you start getting into stuff that, unless you're in the education world, you might not have heard of, like flexible seating. Um, donors choose exhausted the worldwide supply of wobble stools about three years ago because teachers on our site had realized how helpful it is to let a kid wiggle, uh, to, to let them like sit on an exercise ball. There are even these like thick rubber bands that let you like, I don't know, work out your quads while you're uh, under the desk. Um, and and there are all these kids with a lot of physical energy. And if they're able to express their, their physical energy while sitting at their desk, they can pay much better attention to their teacher and so classroom teachers realized this a long time before academia, certainly before the government, and even before education company providers themselves and so that 's why we exhausted the worldwide supply of wobble stools uh, was because teachers you know were were hit to this to this innovation before anybody else. So anyway, after books and technology, you start you start really learning from teachers
0: what we ought to be paying attention to. And Christopher, one that.
1: of the- Go ahead, oh, go I, ahead.
0: I, I, I was gonna say that one of the, um, the most powerful things I think about this, this, this philanthropic marketplace, which really is a, a collection of teachers' best ideas for things they want to do with their classrooms that they can't afford, is that there's this amazing long tail to it all. Uh, we typically have on the order of 50,000 projects on the site from all over the country and on you know during our busy season you know, that number will get up 70,000, 70 75,000 project requests in addition to the to the the geographic um, diversity which is which is truly all over the country this long tail lets donors express a real specific interest, the thing that they're passionate about, the thing that inspires them, their favorite book from high school, uh, the sport they played when they were in school, or it could be they want to support the school down the street, or maybe they're passionate about teaching kids to code, or they love yoga. And by the way, there's teachers using yoga in the classroom uh, to to help the kids, and you can fund all those things. And so uh, along those lines, I I, I saw that um, recently you had uh, Gibby Booth Jasper of dyslexia is a superpower uh uh, she's awesome and you guys were chatting uh and uh so i got thinking about dyslexia and i punched it into the to the website and there's all these teachers who uh who are talking about it. And can I give you some of the examples
1: of the things that, that they want to do? So uh, these are all, me. these are all requests that are better. Can I give you my credit card now? I don't even need yeah. to hear it. I'm a, how do I, I start throwing money at you? Yeah. Just read it out and make sure to include the three, the special three digit code that, <laughs>
0: so uh, there's Cole, Mr. Cole, who teaches grades three and four Audubon charter school in New Orleans. And, uh, he has, is, a, is a special educator and instructional interventionist and recently has seen an increase in students who identify uh, as potentially dyslexic. And he asked a friend who's trained in a special uh, method of working with these students called the Dubard Association Method. And this friend came in who's also a teacher. He saw this method be effective with the students. And now what he wants to do is get the funding, which is very modest, to bring the instructional materials for teaching this method Into his classroom, and then I saw another project from Mrs. Pickett teaching grades. Hold on,
1: before you go to Mrs. Pickett, who I'm sure is a wonderful gal, I I need you. um, This is a request. Could you like send me these URLs? I I need to start funding some of this dyslexic stuff on the site. I'm going to do it immediately. No, no joke. I'm going to send it to you. You're you're going to. You're going to be. These projects are. You're going to be moved by the teacher's innovation,
0: and, and also how passionate they are and uh, positive they are about helping their students. So let me tell you about Mrs. Pickett, teaching grades, uh, uh, kindergarten and first grade in Petersburg Elementary in Petersburg, Indiana. This I'd never heard of this uh, innovation. There's something called a C-reader pen that allows the students to pass the pen across a word, and it instantly displays the definition of the word and reads the word aloud to them. And this accommodation, she says, is a lifesaver for students who suffer from reading difficulties, such as dyslexia. And she wants to get a couple of these C pens for her class. They're 250 bucks a pop at Amazon. How cool is that? And then last, I wanted to mention to you a project from Mrs. Fernandez. This one, this one, I think, got me the most. Uh, And she teaches grades four and five, Pullum Elementary in Brownsville, Texas. The project is called Be proud of who you are, I love it. And uh, this one I have to read because she she says it better than I could. What I love about my students is that they're willing to work really hard to succeed even with their dyslexia. Dyslexia kids struggle with reading, writing, spelling and since that is what most of what school's about, they tend to really struggle in class. My students first came to me with low self-esteem and felt like they were just not smart enough. After a couple of weeks with me, they start to build their self-esteem and love to read. I remind my students every day, that being dyslexic is not something they should be ashamed of. It's something you should be proud of. Parentheses, insert dyslexia as a superpower plug here. And get what they're doing. They're requesting funds because they want to make shirts for the students to wear during Dyslexia Awareness Month, which is every October. And they have a conference to educate parents and students about what it means to be dyslexic and how to help their children grow. And they want to make cool homegrown t-shirts to wear during this month. So be
1: proud of who you are. You gave me three, right? Am I remembering this right? Did I write this yeah. down? Okay. So can you do me a giant favor, please, Oliver? Uh, those each have individual links, I assume? Of course. Yeah. Send me those links. Each one of those teachers, I'm going to give them a thousand bucks. Wow. Wow. They're going to they're be so appreciative. It's so cool. I'm appreciative. That's who's appreciative. Because you know what? I'm a dyslexic kid. And even though most people didn't even know to look for it back then, so you know, I didn't find out until I was 21. As you know, I got thrown out at 18. But here's what I do know. In, in spite of that, there were teachers who made a giant difference to me. And I actually found one of them. Uh, I forget what his first name is now because I only remember him by his last name because I was a kid, but he, his name is uh, Mr. Ross Russell. He lives in the UK now. And uh, my mom, when I was failing terribly in school, I uh, found a school in Montreal whose uh, curriculum was fifty percent music, art, and drama. And Ross Russell was the drama teacher, and he just he just took a shine to me, and he made a giant difference to me. And I, I actually managed to find him several years ago on Facebook, and I sent him uh, a, a super heartfelt note. And and the essence of what I said to him, which is, I'm sure, the essence of these three teachers, is if the job of the education system, fundamentally, is to create a happy, successful, productive, you know, uh, effective person in the world who grows up to, you know, design a great life for themselves and hopefully be a contributor to our world. If, If ultimately you say that's the ultimate job, you know, in this case, uh, Ross Russell was one of those few teachers that made a difference to me and opened the world of music art and drama for me while the worlds of math and science and reading were shutting. And we all know what happens to a child if they feel like the world is shutting and there isn't something else that opens. And in a very real world or very real way, those teachers who take the time to find those kids and to help them Particular kids for whom traditional things are shutting. We have a every, you know, we are not all around pegs, right? And so a a one fits all uh, strategy for education is a horrible one. And the teachers who have the courage to go outside the lines and to do special things for those of us who don't fit into the system, system, I think those teachers are heroes. I think that really is the story of the website, which is that, um, Teachers,
0: frontline educators—they are our heroes, and uh, they're they're working around the clock, and they're not usually paid very well, and they do it because they love helping these kids and inspiring them, and and we believe they're the experts in what's best for these kids, and that's why the site is built to basically let them go direct to uh, the what we call citizen donors—the person who gives fifty bucks at a time, or in your case, bigger ticket. Thank you, Christopher, uh, and and also. Uh, 50% of our donations actually come from corporations and a couple foundations. And so we've had a lot of success. I, and, and I think that the essence of it is uh, the diversity of, of projects in terms of topic and geography. And then it's, it's hearing directly from the teachers. We, we talk about sort of our brand, even like we want to take a backseat. We want to feel like a platform. You, you should come to our website and these corporations and these donors, it should be about a direct connection with the classroom connecting with these teachers, connecting with the students. By the way, they message back and forth after they donate. Uh, they hear back, they get pictures, they get thank you notes. And um, I don't know, I, 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 I like that when it feels like we are taking a back seat and it's that connection which is the most powerful.
1: The other thing I find fascinating about what you folks have done is when you hear people talk about the education system, they often very quickly within a sentence or two go to, and then the government and the system and and, and, and all these things that the thing is supposed to do, this giant, I don't even know what the system is, who the fuck's the system, right? What I love about what you guys are doing is, all that's true and does the government need to do this? And you know, like for example, in California, it makes me crazy that dyslexic kids to get extra help and extra time need to be classified as disabled. Go fuck yourself, they're not disabled, anyway. Yeah. But um, uh, what I love about what you guys have done is you said, yeah, okay, well, there's the system and there's this and there's Congress and there's the state Senate and there's the school board and I don't know what. It's a morass of who knows what. You said, hey, Charles, let's be an entrepreneur, right? L- w- what can I do? How can we create a platform? And does the system need to change? Sure, but you're, you're changing the system by using an entrepreneurial mindset and technology to harness the natural human desire we all have to contribute and make a difference, and to put these small donors in touch with teachers that need a couple of bucks here and there for added things and swizzly chairs and I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell people
0: that I think, um, and Charles uh, could correct me if, if I've got this uh, slightly wrong, but I think that Charles' founding aha moment was not that education is. Um, sadly underfunded in our country, especially in high need communities, and that teachers and students need help uh, because that certainly was not new news. His aha moment was if I can give um, citizen donors, regular people, the ability to pick and choose and be direct with their giving and hear directly from the people they'll help and get the same sort of appreciation and feedback and transparency as was previously the domain solely of Millionaire benefactors, um, you know. Usually, if you give fifty bucks to a regular nonprofit, and and I don't want to uh, besmirch anyone. They do many organizations doing wonderful work, but you don't get the cost report breaking down to the penny of where your dollars are going. You don't get the direct connection with the recipient. Um, and so that was sort of the inspiration, I think, for for Charles, which is that if if a regular, if the internet, if technology can enable a regular person giving fifty bucks to have that experience of directness and transparency and reporting and Feedback, um, something magical might happen, and and eight hundred and forty million dollars
1: later, I think it has. Unbelievable, eight forty is the number so far. Yeah, and, and so let me maybe let's go there, Charles. What was your thinking? I would call what you guys have done to, to Oliver's point, you know, radical transparency in a way that traditional, to your point, Oliver, traditional um, uh, nonprofits not that they haven't tried to do good, to, I'm not saying that, but there's a, you, you're, you're part of a new type of radically transparent nonprofit. Uh, tell me about why that matters, how that came to you, et cetera.
2: It was not market analysis or, or much of anything other than my colleagues and I are in this teacher's lunchroom with all these ideas for what we want to do with our students. And I just bet that the typical charitable giving experience where at that time you put, you know, a $50 check in the mail after being hit up with a maybe like a, a photo or an image designed to pull at your heartstrings or just make you feel really guilty and then you put 50 bucks in the mail and you just kind of hope that it it went to, you know, the people you wanted to help that that's not a great user experience and Shoot, I wouldn't have even known the words user experience because I had zero technology uh, uh, familiarity, but it, 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 I just kind of figured we, we teachers have all these ideas and there must be folks out there who'd want to engage directly with us teachers and, and, and with these ideas. And if we could show them where their money went, we'd, we'd be able to do a lot more with our students.
1: And I, I sort of maybe there's an obvious question, but I'm and, and I think I know the answer, but I really am curious to hear it from you. Why a nonprofit? Why do you say, well, hey, uh, you know, this could be a very good profitable business. We're doing a good thing for the world. There's nothing wrong with making money while doing doing good in the world. Um, why a org? You know, this is before I think it
2: was starting about ten years ago when there were more. Uh, purpose-driven for-profits and business-minded non-profits and kind of like a hybrid of the two. So it, it for it, honestly, it didn't occur to me that there even was a choice. I, I just figured we had to be a charity. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't rewind and do that over again. Oliver referred to all the companies and foundations that help students and teachers through our site. And I think we'd have a much harder time securing that support if we were not a 501c3 public charity. Um, yeah, I think that $840 million would actually be a smaller number if
1: we were a for-profit. So let me see if I can translate what you just said to me, uh, Charles. Um, you making money personally took a backseat to you making a difference. Is that,
2: That's a nice way to put it. Yes.
1: say. Because, you know, if you had made this thing work as, an, as a traditional for-profit entrepreneur, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that your personal net worth would be different than it probably is. Is that a fair statement? (laughs) Oh, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I guess so. I,
2: um, hopefully Oliver feels the same way. I think, I think both of us feel like fortunate, uh, even compared to successful entrepreneurs of for-profit companies to be, to be doing what we do.
1: Well, and Oliver, you know, I would sort of ask you the same question in that, you know, obviously I knew you as a young entrepreneur. I thought, you were were then, obviously you still are now, but you you are an incredibly impressive guy, very articulate, uh, had some deep technology insights. I mean, you could have- Go on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Incredibly handsome. I mean, there was people of both sexes throwing themselves at you constantly. I mean, it was was hard to be around you walking around outside that you were so magnanimously awesome. Um, But all that said, you could have stayed at Microsoft and gone on to be a senior executive there, potentially, if that's what you wanted to do, or done another startup with, uh, you know, whoever you wanted to do that with, or whatever, whatever. I mean, you could have done other things that would have been much more personally, financially lucrative, and you were certainly on that path as a young rock star entrepreneur.
0: You know, what happened, my story is, sort of picks up where, where, uh, our work together left off. So I'm at Microsoft. I've been there about four years. Um, there was an election in, was it two, was it 2004 that didn't go the way I wanted. And I had done a lot of volunteering, um, get out the vote stuff around the election. And actually with our good friend, Matt Lerner, we did this thing called DrivingVotes.org. That was my first.org. Sorry, Charles. And, uh, <laughs> We, what we did is we, we rented these RVs and we drove, uh, from Seattle across the country and then down to New York, then down to Florida, all across the country, um, registering voters in swing States and kind of blogging about it. And, you know, after I went back to work after that experience, first of all, it was, it was upsetting that, that, um, the election didn't go the way we wanted and we put all our blood and sweat into it. And, and, and. And even though I really enjoyed my time at Microsoft, the people there were so smart and well-intentioned, and I learned a ton, I, I had a little trouble focusing after that.
1: You and know I, Ralph Nader really didn't have a chance. You know that, <laughs> right?
0: Don't drag me back there. We got enough problems as it is. But so, so, you know, the truth is after I came back to Microsoft after that, I had trouble focusing in the same way because I felt like uh, my day job was uh, – helping helping a business and my, and it was sort of on the side where I had to give back and, and help in some way. And that got me thinking, you know, was there something at the intersection of high technology that I was passionate about and social impact? And I think I was, there, there are now, there's been a great renaissance in the last 10 years. And there are now a lot of really cool organizations that are product focused. They're using technology um, to make a big difference. But back when I was Looking for my next thing, 2006 in New York City, there really wasn't. And I just am so, I feel so fortunate. It was such serendipity that I crossed paths with Charles because, Christopher, there, there are a lot of nonprofits, for, and now today, but especially back then, that have IT needs. Uh, of course they do. But that's not, that's not what I do. I, I build I like to build products, um, and I like to be innovative, and I like to figure out what customers want um, together with people who who know the market well and all that stuff. And uh, I just think I was so fortunate to find this organization that um, was really sort of, even though Charles wouldn't have described it as such at the time, was really product led uh, and and could only do their social impact through technology through the internet. Uh, And it was just serendipity, and and we've been and and. Anyway, it's been, a, it's, been a, it's been a great trip. We've been kicking butt ever since.
1: So I, another thing I'm curious about is uh, you hear all this discussion today about things like uh, mission-driven founders, right? So Jim Getz at Sequoia says Sequoia looks for mission-driven founders who can build a category and a company at the same time. And then uh, Mike Maples uh, Jr. at Floodgate who says, um, I, I'm we're looking for entrepreneurs who can create movements, right, and, and, and mobilize many thousands of people to action. And then there's a lot of discussion today about um, uh, creating community, and you know we've had uh, Gina Bianchini on and uh, from Mighty Networks, and Nigel Eccles on who uh, did Fanduel and and now is doing Flip this. Thing for podcasters. And so there's, and you know, we had Sangram Vajri on talking about how they're creating community and all this stuff, right? And so there's this huge discussion about mission driven. And then there's this huge discussion around whatever you want to call it a movement, community, high levels of engagement. Uh, you know, all these ideas are swizzling around right now. And there's some very powerful network effect businesses. Um, it, all these ideas are swizzling around. And you guys are at the forefront of them. And so m- maybe. Let me ask you for a little advice. If I was a fellow entrepreneur now and saying, hey, I want to create a movement, I want to create a community, and I want to be the centering platform that mobilizes a bunch of people to action around a set of things that I think are super important. Um, What have you learned about those things around creating movements and and, and community and, and, and particularly getting them to actually go to action?
2: I want to hear what, what Oliver has to say on this sort of on the macro front. I'll, I'll say that within this new sector uh, that people will call crowdfunding, there are thousands of sites that you could think of as utility fundraising tools, and there are probably fewer than, than five uh, sites that have built community and, and engagement, and you've actually named uh, the second and third already. Uh, I, I would I think of donors choose Kiva and Kickstarter as um, and there might be one or two more, but really those are the those are the only crowdfunding sites that have built community to, to to make it more tangible. Those are the only sites where people would go to their front page to discover a need or a micro loan or a project created by someone they've never met. All the other crowdfunding sites. You have a lot of proud aunts and uncles and loyal friends and ex-girlfriends and ex-boyfriends who are going direct to the page of the campaign creator because that campaign creator hit up the people they know and, and tapped their social network. But at Donors Choose, only 25% of the dollars given to classroom projects on our site come from teachers fundraising from their friends and family, come from teachers sharing their projects on Facebook. 75% of the dollars come from you saying, I want to see what ideas teachers have for reaching students with dyslexia. And I don't care that it's five states away from where I live and that I've never met these teachers or students. I I love that idea. That's 75% of what's happening on our site. And, And on Kiva, if it's a micro loan to someone uh, in, in another country, it's probably a hundred percent from from strangers on Kickstarter. It might be around a third that's coming from strangers, but that's a third more than on just about any other crowdfunding site, where where a hundred percent of the giving or ninety nine percent of the giving is people just hitting up their friends and family. And so, I think it's community that distinguishes those very few crowdfunding sites where someone can be discovered from all of the crowdfunding sites where that are. Fundraising tools to hit up the people you know. And and for us, that's actually important from an equity perspective. The reason why donors choose as a magnet for teachers in low-income communities is because our site is the one place where a teacher can bring a classroom dream to life, even if they do not have friends with money, even if they do not have students' parents with money. And and it's it's that ability to be discovered by people you don't know, that community aspect that is. I think like the, the, the platinum uh, uh, entity that, that's so hard to create, and why it's probably only Kiva, Kickstarter, Donors Choose, maybe one or two more that, can, that have done that.
1: Charles, that's so interesting. I, I don't know that I ever would have thought about it in quite that way, right? Uh, but it, maybe this makes me dumb, but it's like, huh, uh, if I want to raise money, I need to know people who have money. And if I don't know very many people that have money, how am I going to raise money?
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. It's it's a, the the money you raise on a on a crowdfunding site that's a a commodity fundraising tool. It's it's just a proxy. It, it is a proxy for the disposable income in your social network.
1: And so I imagine that the. Um I don't want to pick on any particular spot, but you know if I'm a principal in a small town somewhere that is not, uh, let's say, economically advantaged or blessed, my ability to raise money when I have this geo-restriction and my own personal network and the network of those around us, is my limiter, and that principal or teacher is very distinct from the principal or teacher of, and I'll just pick on one of the high value, high net worth places, Atherton. If I'm the principal of Atherton High, I don't even know if there is an Atherton High, but if there isn't, there's gonna be something like it. That principal's ability to raise money is very different. And so I never thought about what you're doing in that way. You've essentially taken geography out of the equation and you've, you've taken somebody's personal network out of the equation and allowed them to, to tap into a world of people who give a shit wherever they are, and why you know it's ridiculous to me that we would give a shit about supporting a local school, which is a nice thing. I want to support my local community for sure, but you know, uh, uh, Oliver, you mentioned one of the dyslexic uh, teachers you were talking about was in uh, uh, Texas somewhere. As you said, well, I, I give a shit about dyslexic kids in Santa Cruz, and I give a shit about them in Texas too, right? Just the fact that they're not down the street doesn't mean anything to me. They still exist. And, this is,
0: and one thing that we hear, which is really touching, is when teachers tell their students, because students ask, these boxes of stuff show up, and, people, and these are students in high-need communities. This doesn't happen every day. And they go, what's this? And teachers tell us that when they explain to their students that there are strangers who have never met them, who live across the country, but those people... Are inspired by their motivation and and what they 're doing in the classroom every day, they say that, that 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 also in addition to the raw materials and the resources is is very powerful for the students. you know coming back to your question, something I think about that underpins um, Part of the difference between just being a fundraising platform for your network versus a marketplace where, where, where you would feel comfortable giving to a classroom across the country uh, has to do with trust and integrity, which is a big part of philanthropy, which is if you gave us that money, but you weren't sure if it was going to go where it was supposed to you might hesitate or you might not give again. And so what that means for us, and not to get too nitnorky into the, by the way, another phrase that I may have borrowed from you that I've been using for 20 years. Um, uh, but but one of the things that that uh, we do, which adds significant operational overhead and complexity, but we think is necessary, is everything we do after we get the money, which is that we don't, unlike traditional crowdfunding, we don't send it to the classroom. What we do is we purchase the materials and we drop ship them to the classroom. If there's a field trip, we pay the bus company directly. We know that every teacher is, based on the data we get from the government, is a real teacher at a real school, will only ship to that school. Um, there are other benefits to this, the convenience to the teacher, of us, Of us, they, they, they're very busy, they don't have to run around and buy stuff. By the way, we get purchasing discounts and purchasing leverage because we're spending all this money with vendors that teachers wouldn't get if they were spending $300 themselves at Staples. Um, and so I think this is, you know, one of the things from the beginning that people challenged Charles on, and that was, became an immediate challenge for me technically and operationally, is it's very easy to scale. 50 bucks came in, route it to that person on the internet. It is not as easy to scale all of these uh, fulfillment and trust and integrity measures that will make someone comfortable giving to, to people they don't know. And, uh, you know part of the another part of the magic uh, that that we hear back from donors that they love is um, they hear back directly from the classroom they'll get a note from the teacher after their donation and they'll also get pictures of the kids with the resources doing the thing and you know that's pretty powerful evidence the kids holding the xylophone they bought they're holding the sea reader pen that that reads to them it's it's very compelling so that may be part of my other message to our uh, hypothetical entrepreneur is that the community can't succeed and reach scale without trust because once you go beyond the people, you know, you have to have some mechanism for trust.
1: Yes. And I think you guys have tapped into that, that closed loop piece where you send the photos or the videos of the kids doing the thing with the stuff that we all help them buy. I think that's a missing for a lot of nonprofits. Uh, my buddy, John Roman is the founder of an outfit called the front row foundation <laughs> And uh, their mission is a very simple one, which is to give people who are facing life-threatening um, uh, diseases, challenges of whatever kind, uh, a, a bucket list experience that's a life experience. And in many cases, it ends up being um, on the on the eve of their death. And I'll tell you, having participated in this, when you fund the dream of somebody in many cases, a younger person, but of people of any age, when you fund the dream of somebody who's dying and then that person dies and they send you the photos and the videos, uh, if you don't weep, you're not a human being. And so I love this closed loop uh, because we all want to, look, what's one of the most basic human needs? We all want to feel like we matter. And we make a difference. And when we make a contribution, Charles, to the point you made, you know, you send 50 bucks to the I don't know what foundation of the I don't know who's. Maybe they send you like a calendar at Christmas or something. I don't know what they send you. Right. And I actually I'm one of these people who I always tell when I when I make a contribution, don't send me the gift. I don't want the fucking tote. Take the tote money and give it. Don't do that. But, you know, I will say the thing that I do now having experienced it myself, Oliver, to your point, what I would love is that feedback. Show me how I, in partnership with some other folks, help these kids to learn how to read more effectively. Don't, don't, I don't want the hat. I don't need the donors choose hat, right? What I want is more kids being successful in the world. And if you show me that I was part of that, wow. I think right it's there? the power.
0: It's the power of the one-to-one, which is that, like I said before, people don't come to us because they want to give to us, right? They come to us for the connection to the classrooms, and so furthering that connection and that relationship is. Um, it makes sense. It's the most human thing there is, right? I mean, philanthropy is not an invention. People have been helping each other since the beginning of time, um, and it's exciting to work on something that that helps do that at scale. And we also applaud the others, like the. Kivas that, that are also doing it at scale. It's, it's, it's cool. You can, you can see why I get so hopped up about it.
1: Now I'm also curious. I, I'm somebody who believes the E CEO stands for evangelist. I think you guys are a shining example of a leadership team that uh, evangelizes the problem, the mission of what you're on and the difference it can make. I think you've done a wonderful job at laying out a point of view that's highly, highly differentiated. So I think on, on all the category design fronts, you know, you guys get big, uh, uh, what, what should I say as a teacher, Charles says, you get gold stars on those things. Does that make you feel real good? Or would that be a good way of me expressing my admiration? Thank you. And, yes. And as part of the evangelism, the other thing that you folks have done that I find fascinating is you have, we live in a celebrity world where people think that. You know these celebrities are some magical creatures. I'm not exactly sure why. I, I'm not that fascinated by them, but that's just me. But anyway, that said, you've done an incredible job at at uh, cultivating relationships with high, high, super high-profile celebrities and people who take your uh, evangelism to a whole other level. Could you sort of sh- share how you got all these folks involved and what you have them doing and and and, and how that's made a difference for donors choose?
2: Yeah, I, I think the best microcosm or or, or example, um, although he really he he stands head and shoulders uh, uh, above is stephen colbert and and um, Colbert got involved with us in two thousand seven when he was running for president in the South Carolina Democratic primary, and we sensed that he faced a challenge, which was he needed to give the Colbert nation, his viewers. A way to support his candidacy, but that it, it, but in a way that wouldn't waste their money because then it was an act of satire, and so we came up with this idea for a philanthropic presidential straw poll where people could donate to a classroom project in honor of their favorite candidate and thereby push that candidate higher up in what we called a straw poll that makes a difference. so we came up with this idea. Um, through, through Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist and uh, another board member of ours, we sort of got the idea to Colbert. And, and he was like, that is exactly what I need to light up my, my viewers with you know, something they can do. And of course, he won the philanthropic presidential straw poll. And, and then that began um, more than 10 years now of incredible commitment to our org. He's probably done 25 stunts and campaigns and calls to action. But I I think the the important point is that we first approached Stephen Colbert not saying we're a great cause and you ought to support us because we're a great cause. Instead, we went to Colbert saying, we sense that you have a challenge on your hands. You've got to engage your, your viewers in your run for president, but you don't actually want them to waste their money on traditional political donations. So you've got this problem, this challenge. We could we could help you solve that challenge. And oh, by the way, we're a great cause. That 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 was kind of secondary. And so it was almost like a kind of like a user focused uh, approach to celebrity engagement.
1: It's so funny because it's such a simple insight, right? Which is come up with an idea that's going to matter to the person that you want to get engaged with your thing. As opposed to, hey, we're awesome. Give us money, eh? That's right. Like everybody's ask is, we're awesome. Give us money. As opposed to, here's how we can help you. And oh, by the way, we're awesome. Give us money.
2: <laughs> that's right.
1: Well, that's it. You know, Christopher. Now, yeah, go ahead,
0: Oliver. I was going to say, it reminds me. Not to take us way back in time, and uh, Charles, I know you have to jump shortly, but um, uh, it reminds me of when my business partner, Matt, and I were trying to sell the software we made, and Christopher said, "Listen, let me go ride shotgun with you guys on a on a sales uh meeting so I can just see what's going on and 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 I will spare you the gory details. It was hilarity it was like in retrospect, it was hilarity, but in the moment it was it, it, was, it was frightening to see how terrible we were at it. But um, I remember afterwards, Christopher Serda was telling us, you know, like sales 101, you guys need to shut up and listen. Why are you doing all the talking? You need to learn about them, about what they need, about their business. And, and I think, anyway, that, that, that reminded me of it both... Uh, because it was, it was one of our great memories. Uh, I remember even, hold on, even in the elevator, leaving it when it was just the three of us, we were trying to say, we were like still trying to make excuses and Christopher was just like, just shut up. And it was so good, it was so good. It was just what we needed. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the long-winded point is uh, that was the connection with Colbert, which is that Charles was listening and we were listening uh, as opposed to just leading with a
1: pitch. And And who are some of the remind me again who some of the other celebrities are who are involved now? Oh gosh. Well, I'll just think most recently um, we we did a campaign
2: called I see Me, which was about supporting underrepresented teachers, teachers of color, women, math, and science teachers, teachers of 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 all identities who want to get books and other materials that reflect their their students' identities. And uh, gosh. John Legend and Octavia Spencer and Yvette Nicole Brown, who is uh, uh, second maybe only to Stephen Colbert as a, as a champion of our org, Samuel Jackson, um, Stephan Aisha Curry just raised a, a major fund for, for classroom projects on our site in, in Oakland and in the Bay
1: Area. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's exciting. I love it. Anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap? You honestly f- phrased it. Uh,
2: I, we're going to record uh, or, or we're going to use this uh, to, to um, pitch our donors on why our org makes, makes a difference because you, you say it best, Christopher. Well,
1: <laughs> I'm flattered you say that. I think you guys say it best. I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I respect and admire what you're doing so much. I think you've taught us a lot about uh, the human spirit and the power of connecting the human spirit entrepreneurship and technology in a very, very unique way to make a difference. And Oliver, look, I know this may sound corny, but you and I have known each other for a very long time and allow me to be corny. I'm just so proud of you, man.
0: Listen, the love is mutual. It's an honor. This is so fun. I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we reconnected. And uh, thank you for having us.
1: Stay legendary gentlemen. There they are. Charles Best and Oliver Hurst Hiller. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you know somebody in your life who would appreciate hearing this, um, why not share it with them right now? If you're listening on a podcast app, most podcast apps make it very easy to do that. Now, my friends at NetSuite uh, actually do some pretty amazing work in the nonprofit area. As a matter of fact, NetSuite, as the leader in cloud ERP, makes its applications and technology available for free to Qualified nonprofits. Yeah, you heard me right. And nonprofits can access solutions specific to their needs things like grant accounting, FASB reporting, nonprofit budgeting, and a lot more. And of course, because it's NetSuite, it all runs in the cloud and allows leaders of nonprofits to have the critical information they need at their fingertips, even in a mobile environment through NetSuite's awesome dashboards. NetSuite also offers ongoing pro bono support directly, as well as they bring their ecosystem to bear for, uh, for nonprofits. It's an incredible thing that NetSuite does. And if you're a nonprofit or for that matter, a for profit business, and you want to learn how to build the foundation for growth, uh, for your business, check out netsuite.com slash different. And there you'll be able to set up a free one hour growth review with an expert in your industry. And if you're a nonprofit, just let them know that. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. I also want to tell you, by the time you hear this, um, the internet gods, uh, (laughs) if they've been kind to us, uh, my new marketing podcast should be available, and it is aptly named Lockhead on Marketing. For more information on the new podcast, or I should say, oddcast, check out Lockhead.com or go to anywhere that you enjoy legendary podcasts and search for Lockhead on Marketing. All right. We would like to thank... The amazing folks at DonorsChoose.org. This is a fantastic nonprofit. And I'll tell you, when you get an email directly from a teacher and uh, that teacher tells you the good things that you've been able to help fund in a classroom for a bunch of kids, uh, it really changes your day and, frankly, your week. Check out DonorsChoose.org. Another nonprofit I love, OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out OneLifeFullyLive.org. GrowWire.com. This is what growth-oriented entrepreneurs are uh, reading today. Check it out, GrowWire.com. Another marketing podcast that I love from my friends at The Mission Check out Marketing Trends wherever you get Legendary Podcasts. This is one of the top marketing podcasts. It became very popular very quickly. They do an amazing job. Check out Marketing Trends Podcast. Now, are you looking to scale yourself? Have you thought about getting some help from a virtual assistant? Well, my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants are here to help. Check them out at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.com online. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. All rights, do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Don't forget, please. Support your public schools and the kids that need your help. They are our future. They're the wing beneath our wings and all that other cliche stuff. (laughs) Don't forget, it's all about the kids. (laughs) And never forget that a massive disadvantage can be transformed into a massive competitive advantage. Also want to let you know, if you live in California, driving too slowly on the highway can result in a $238 fine. So don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Don't forget to listen to Blue Rodeo. George Carlin was right. If you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky. We just ran out of time for you. <laughs> All right. Thank you for investing part of your life with us. Uh, It means the world to me. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.